0: This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by One Heat Minute Productions, the podcast feed that you are listening to right now. We have some great stuff happening on the feed. The first one that I want to talk about is Paul Thomas Anderson's Inherent Vice has been broken down scene by scene, 45 episodes, November of 2019 all the way to the 31st of October, With our host, Travis Woods, it has just finished its 45-episode run, some incredible guests, some lengthy and in-depth and exhaustive conversations, some revelations, and our final show, the 45th episode, which I'm a guest, Blake Howard, who you're talking to and listening to today, um, uh, is up now. It's a Victory lap, a clip show that features some of our incredible guests. It features our great narrator, Kat Corbett. It features Travis and myself and some revelations, and look, we would love if you could check it out and share and rate and review the series based on listening to either All the President's Minutes or current Advice. Thank you so much for listening. Now let's get on to this episode of All the President's Minutes.
1: You have two extraordinary candidates and John and the Reverend who deserve your vote. And let's face it, you've also got two senators who badly need to be replaced. Look, I I served in the Senate. I remember when we used to get briefings in the Senate for threats, including the kinds of briefings that your two current senators got about COVID-19. They got briefed. You know, you, you go into this room and it's all top secret, and you got to kind of close everything off. And, you know, you can't take anything out of the briefing room because this is part of your responsibility as a public servant. And the point of these briefings is so that you can take quick action to protect the American people before it's too late. That's why the Senate gets these special briefings, to serve the interests of the people who have sent you to Washington to serve their interests before your own. When I heard that your two senators here in Georgia, and understand what I'm about to say now is not a partisan statement. I'd be just as hard if I heard a Democrat was doing this. Your two senators uh, publicly were telling you that the virus would be no big deal. But behind closed doors, they were making a bunch of moves in the stock market to try to make sure their portfolios were protected instead of making sure you were protected man that's shady that that's i mean that that's that ain't right They downplayed the pandemic in public, and in private, they're trying to see if they can profit, profit from it, both of them. Not just one of them, both of them. They're like Batman and Robin gone bad. <laughs> it's like the dynamic duo of doing wrong. I don't know what they were thinking, but Georgia, I promise you, uh, Georgia was definitely not on their mind.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Uh, joining me today is a friend of One Hit Minute Productions. Uh, firstly, friend um, and 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 co-collaborator I guess you would call with Travis Woods not only being a part of Increment Vice but also a part of Screen Crave and if you listen to their episode on In- 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 Increment Vice you would know my guest emphatically encourage anyone who writes online to Keep archives of their work for um, reasons that he's probably once bitten uh, or ten times bitten and a thousand times shy of. Um, uh, when I had uh, when I just finished editing the show, uh, another friend of the show, Garth Franklin, said, "Oh, you had this person on the show. The last time I saw him, we were drunk on a fire escape." And so, if the resume is not already sounding intimidating and and cool, hold on to your hats right now. He's mainly on Twitter because he is working in the biz, but he was a writer on the internet who now is semi-retired. He wrote for Chad.com, Screen Crave, as I said, um, has also had bylines in the New York Times, um, is an insanely talented and insightful uh, uh, writer and, and, and a film mind. And particularly on the Increment Vice episode, you can hear that and you would have already heard it. You're about to hear it now. But he's also one of now a few people, who have started lobbying for their own podcast on the feed? His about uh, under the Silver Lake, and largely we haven't kicked it off yet because I haven't thought of a good pun title. Maybe that's what we can find out today. It's my distinct pleasure to welcome Damon House to all the President's Minutes, mate. Thank you so much for being a part of the show.
2: Oh, thank you for having me. Maybe something about uh, <laughs> Beware the Dog Killer, something related <laughs> to that. We'll get um, <laughs> a very <laughs> kind introduction. Well,
0: so, well. Uh, you just all of our guests emphatically uh, uh you know uh, get their really sort of florid introductions because we're happy for a your time but B, your insight and so that's just that's how we roll here at one eight minute productions that's what we do
2: well who, who doesn't enjoy being buttered um <laughs> in more ways ways so than I, more. <laughs> No, I'll take it, it stride um yeah so um Am I the last person you're talking to before the election? You or are
0: You are doing one you, you're the last American that is coming on before the election. There will be a couple of Aussies. Uh, I can, I can tell guests now, uh, Cam James and Alexi toliopoulos both uh, comedian film guys uh, of, of the Finding Drago slash Finding Desperado podcast are going to be the last guests before the election. And, uh, and so, yeah, it's, It is a weird nexus of time that I'm coming to you today.
2: Yes, uh, we're we're, uh, 48 hours from results starting to trickle in. Um, It's already, uh, it's it's an interesting time to be alive. We'll just leave it at that because everyone's been going through it and no need to rehash, but we're definitely in this weird um, twilight time, hopefully um, right now that, yeah, it's nerve-wracking, and it's got—it's good to watch a comfort food film like *All the President's Men* to kind of hope that, uh, yes, it is really dumb, but it can be taken down.
0: <laughs> um, yes. And and it can be infuriating, and there can be this weird uh, publicity media doublespeak that happens, where it's all non denial denials, and just sort of like uh, questioning the integrity of the news sources rather than actually staring into the facts of the case that are as it as as it happens. Um, and it's really weird, Dana, because so far. I knew this was coming, and in my head had been thinking about the end of the show, which which is going to end. You know, we're recording this now on the second of November, Australia time. In twenty days' time, every single episode of this show will be complete. Like, it, like we're finishing on the twenty second of November, and arbitrarily the date it'll be the twenty first in the states. Arbitrarily, the only reason for that is it's my daughter's birthday, and I finished one heat minute on my son's birthday, and the twenty second of November is my daughter's. So that's what's just happening for me. But I, as I started to roll into this, I started going, "Oh my God, there is going to be a, there is going to be a coda almost to this show. It's going to be such a strange chart to say, right up to the point that we know whether Donald Trump is going to have four more years in office or not. We're going to cross that bridge." And the tone of the show, like one of my guests and Aussie Tom Clift, was like, "God, this show is going to sound really different." one way or another. (laughs) So it's going to be super interesting to talk to people. And so this week, I'm not sure how many more American guests I'm going to get that are going to be comfy to talk unless the election results go the way that I think most of the world want them to go, which is Biden being elected. Then I might have some emphatically happy people to talk to. Or if it's another Trump win, I might have some people who are very ready to scream at this movie about being a lie, About, (laughs) about no longer being authentic, but being a lie.
2: It's funny, you know, four years ago, I, I was at work, um, and we were all, you know, kind of sitting there, and earlier in the day, I was thinking, hey, even though it's a Tuesday, the election's happening, I'm probably going to go to a bar after this. We have our first woman president. You know, maybe, you know, people are going to be kind of horned up, you know, maybe it's going to be, like, good for sexy time, um, <laughs> and of course, you know, however many hours later, uh, just feeling like you've been punched in the stomach six or seven times um, by a very large um, skilled gentleman. Uh, It was uh, horrific. Uh, And now it's the tragedy is if he loses, uh, we can't go to a bar to celebrate with our friends. We have to all just text each other and and Zoom and and, and just be like, yeah, hopefully we get there. Um, It's weird. To think that democracy is holding on by the tiniest of threads, but yeah you know, maybe it's, it won't be all that bad.
0: yeah, I, I don't know if I've talked about it much on the show, maybe i mentioned it once or twice, but I just remember my boss and I were working at uh, my boss at the time and I were working at a different site that day in the company that we're working for, which it, it's a it's a multinational multinational company. It's got a couple of different buildings. So we're working in the one of their city sites and we're sitting together and we're just typing and shared a few meetings and I said, oh, I'm going to bring up that 538 election tracking website, which does a lot of analytics and projections and stuff. And I'm just going to follow, I'll keep it on one of our screens today. So we can just check it out as we're doing other stuff. Anyway, as, so it's all the predictions, are Clinton, 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 as they're happening. And then one of the first big state results comes in and their prediction was that Clinton would have it by 70, 30, and it comes back almost like 80, 20 for Trump. And it was like the first domino of what was later. And so I, I did no work that day. Un, I like, I can say this unequivocally, I did zero work because it became too became an incredibly fascinating thing. and then I so you start hearing the buzz in the execs in the company and people talking about it and you started watching like because that particular company had like screens that would show you know the Australian stock exchange and stuff. the world started, the stock exchange started reverberating uh, with the impacts of the American election and things started happening. And all the news, all the news in the the country was like, this is not, you know, to quote another great podcast, like this is not happening sort of thing. And it started all happening, but I just remember that that moment that it sort of cascaded out of control. And I think what at least has been good about this election is that people are so emphatic about voting and getting out there and doing it that no matter what i think it's like it will show one of the biggest participations ever of voting so like undeniably you know while while the 2016 election ultimately was not completely a landslide to trump like he won it pretty convincingly in the end um but but it but um uh, it wasn't a landslide i think this time what what is going to be is that the representative government will win And, and from what i'm seeing it's tracking towards a biden and harris win um, for every reason under the sun. Um, but you know, nothing, uh, your your, your, your country, your country, nothing surprises, nothing will surprise me.
2: Well, you know, and if we do get through this, I don't, I I don't like making predictions about stuff like this because then it becomes like, I've got a vested interest. I have no control over this situation. So I like to let go as much as possible. Um, because it's the only healthy way to deal with the chaos that's surrounded. you know, at the end of the day, there are, there are a lot of problems in America. And if the Trump presidency does anything good, it would be pointing out the fact that um, so much of uh, liberal governance over the last, you know, 30, 40 years uh, has, has not done a very good job of policing uh, conservative side of things. You know, like, you know, Obama might hold a beer summit, but nothing actually changes with the police. And it's like, we're getting to the point now where, um, things have to change. <laughs> like yeah. they have to, like, there have to be consequences for these guys. And if, if we didn't learn that lesson, in you know, 2000 or 2008 after bush was out, like if we didn't learn them this time, then we deserve what we get. Yeah. It's,
0: actually, it, it's, it's, it becomes one of those things where you're like, yeah, it's now or never. It's now and ever. But let's let's go back to a time that also equally felt helpless and that felt like democracy yeah. was dead and that felt like people wanted answers and they were getting very unsatisfactory uh, responses from the media and from the, the existing government at the time. And it's back in sort of 1972 to 74, <laughs> um, uh, back in Washington, D.C. And we're here in Alan J. Pakula and Robert Redford's 1976 masterpiece, All the President's Men. Um, what's your relationship with this movie? I know you're such a, uh, you are a a cinephile of the highest order and you watch an extensive lot of stuff, whether it's high art or trash. And I think you've kind of like got a very good handle on both of those things. So what's your relationship to this movie and this era?
2: Well, um, I think that uh, as anyone who um, studies Cynophilia in the 70s, I think it's a goldmine now. Yes. Uh, as I, I think we're recontextualizing it. It was a gold mine for straight white men who um, had a lot of issues, but um, they were incredible filmmakers. And um, you can't talk about the 70s um, without talking about kind of you know paranoid political thrillers. And there's one name, it's cool. And it's three films. And it's funny too, because like, I like Presumed Innocent I watched um, uh, the Pelican brief again, recently. And it's, it's a lot better movie than its reputation because no one ever talks about it.
0: hundred percent. Um, but I think both of those movies are reputationally far better than they get credit for both presumed innocent as a Ford performance and, and, and particularly Pelican brief just as a a piece of popular entertainment that has a whole lot of substance rather than just nothing.
2: Um, I like, I, I, I can't stand up for the double zone. (laughs)
0: <laughs> <No>. But yeah, <laughs> largely it's... because of accents, let's be fair. <laughs> really, her- really terrible accents.
2: Now that, that's one of those movies, if you were around at the time where you saw that trailer like oh, so many times and, and just Brad Pitt going like, oh, wait, my money. You just heard that like five million times. And you're just like, yeah, no, <laughs> this is this is not working. This is not advertising that's successful. But to your point, um, Pakula is known for these three movies, and they're lionized rightly. And and I, you know, Clute is just an absolute masterpiece, one of the great performances. Well, if I'm from Jane Fonda, uh, just a wonderful work. Parallax View, just unparalleled in terms of just creeping. Just, and then of course Gordon Willis at the top of his game. Uh, you know, the Prince of Darkness, and then when you get to All the President's Men, you know, it's
0: a lot it's, of light though in Parallax View. A lot of light compared to Clute. Like, Clute is shot with, like, ambient light, like, from another room. And then Parallax inverts it completely. Like, it, like it is, it is very bright spaces. There are some dark ones, but it's very bright. And that's the oppressive thing. It's like you are just being dwarfed by all these gigantic... You know, uh structures. Um, and then in presidency kind of comes through and, and gets to balance, gets to play with the underworld and gets to play with the well-lit. And it's just kind of like they they do make a beautiful aesthetic trilogy, if nothing else. You know, sound off, just look at these things, how they're framed and how they're visually told. It's it's pretty, pretty
2: special. What I find most fascinating about Bakula, and to a certain extent I have myself to blame for this, like I've I've never seen any of his 80s movies. I never saw, was it orphans? Uh, i totally skipped uh uh sophie's choice because it's like that just does not sound like a very entertaining movie to me look Maybe if, you had, me. if you had, a, I, if I if you had a
0: choice if you had a choice inherent vice or sophie's choice you're gonna go inherent Vice. <laughs> it's, like, it's like it doesn't doesn't inherently sound like something that you'd be drawn to. Oh, cool. A, hol- a Holocaust drama. No, I'm good. I'm, I'm I'm fine right now, especially in 2020. I, don't, you know, so I know some people have kind of gone towards the darkness watching some dark stuff, but like it just as, as a face value, you're like, no, no, thanks. I'm good. I'm, I'm fine with this one.
2: I think also, you know, I, I was born in 1976, so just as this movie was coming out, but um, there's something about um, a certain kind of Oscar bait movie that it, it just really does not age well or sit well and I know that there's things in that movie that are probably way more interesting and I I should give it more credit but you know uh yes I would rather watch uh you know Four Flies on Grey Velvet or whatever uh whatever uh trash masterpiece you want to throw out there um uh, you know uh, when it boils down to it you know as Orson Well said you only need one and Pakula has three yeah so um that doesn't mean I'm going to watch consenting adults, anytime. but maybe I should,
0: I will just give a quick shout out because it's one of the most popular shows in America right now is Yellowstone with Costner, like as a network mm-hmm. show, um, comes a horseman, which is made in 1978, which, uh, stars Jimmy Kahn and Robards and Jane Fonda, um, is a really excellent movie and is, is like, almost like a bite-sized, you know, very, uh, very sort of single serve Yellowstone thematic movie, which is about, you know, uh, um, you know, sort of dominance um, in, in sort of a couple of families who are like trying to control property and, and manipulating governments and executing violence and having some post-war messiness in the characters. Um, yeah, it's actually pretty good. I watched it for the first time this year and I was like, wow, this is just like Yellowstone, but a movie and stars James Kahn as a cowboy, which is kind of crazy.
2: Well, I'll have to watch it. I, I, I'm a big fan of deep diving on, on uh, talented performers, but I, I feel like Kula, for better or worse, it's like, no, watch those three. You know, Spielberg, <laughs> yeah. people tell you to watch pretty much everything. Yeah. Uh, Carpenter, you know, Scorsese, et cetera, et cetera. With Kula, it's always just been kind of like, no, you, those three albums. That, so,
0: those three is fine. Uh, and, then, and then the Pelican Brief, if you want a bit of fun at the end. You know,
2: yeah, yeah that's it. Presumably, if you want to, yeah. Um, but it's also funny now watching *Presumed innocent because it's like, uh, it's, it's a very dated thriller, yes. you know, the uh, sexual politics, uh, tend to, yes, put things in their era and that, that is very <laughs> much a 1990, 1990 film. Yes. Uh, but let's, let's talk about all the president's men. Shall
0: yes. We? Let's talk about this minute. Um, while, yeah. while. So many moments in this movie is great strategy. I, I can't get enough of these guys hypothesizing and strategizing over fries at, um, old seventy style McDonald's. Um, that doesn't feel like a crowbar in like commercial reason, but just really feels like true to the characters like these guys consistently eat on the run they consistently eat things that are fast they're looking for places where they can just have some anonymity and running around and you know that they're not going to a restaurant because they can't really afford it but they're just running around grabbing a bite to eat and now this is their second conference i've seen in the movie that's happened over mcdonald's and them looking kind of tired and just like trying to stuff their faces with anything so let's watch it right now um we for folks who are listening at home um are at the 115th minute, which is one hour and 54 minutes on the dial of your uh, uh, Blu-ray player, if you're watching a Blu-ray or DVD, or on your HBO Max, Damon and I are going to watch this minute right now. You guys are going to listen along, and then we're going to come back and unpack it for you.
2: We've only got four out of the five who
1: control the fund. It has to be Hall. I don't think we got it. We know the fifth is a top White House official. But no one has said it. No one has named Hall. No one's denied it. That still doesn't prove it was Hall.
2: If you go to bed at night, there's no snow on the ground. You wake up and there's snow on the ground, you can say it snowed during the night, although you didn't see it snowing. Yeah, but if we can't prove that the fifth man is Haldeman, we're wiped out. Everything in that campaign is done with his approval. We know that everybody who works under Haldeman does so with his knowledge. And everybody is under Haldeman except the president. Common sense says it's Haldeman. We go and see Sloan, and we tell him that we know that he named Haldeman to the grand jury. And we, all we would need to do is have him confirm it. Right. Wanna do it that way? Yes. Let's go back and see Sloan. Do
0: you wanna do it that way? Do you wanna go back and tell Sloane that we know he named him to the grand jury? Yes. It's one of the more tenuous sort of uh moments of the movie, one of the more tenuous bits of uh uh of I guess, sort of tradecraft, if you want to call it that, but God damn, I, I can't get enough of these guys coming to the end of their rope with some of the information, you know, trying to fill in the blanks and, uh, and you know, do, just trying to stretch people, back them into the corner to confirm the things they don't want to confirm. It's such a brilliant scene. Yes.
2: Um One of the things I noticed watching it, uh, you know, I watched the movie uh, again yesterday and then watched the movie a couple of times, so I have interesting points to make, hopefully. Um <laughs> one of the things I noticed that you probably wouldn't catch on first or even second viewing is they have six cups in front of them. Yes. Yes. So like, and three are coffee cups and three are soda cups. So either they had someone with them or it's slightly lazy, uh, you know, dress or um, or they, they were just really thirsty and didn't think to get refills. I don't know. Um, but it kind of speaks to their, like the chaos that they've just, they've been there for a couple of hours. They're trying to figure it out. And one of the things I love about this movie and sort of what they figure out is how to get the information, but it's all like childish games, basically. (laughs) Yes. This is, you know, I, I believe, you know, Paul and Kale said, you know, the movie is basically good cop, bad cop, except it's, you know, Jew and Gentile you know, the the angry Jew and, and, you know, the reassuring Gentile, and that is kind of their dynamic, though Redford obviously shows a little more uh, skill at going for the jugular in some ways, Um, so not completely fair, but, like, I love that their whole machination to reveal this plot is to basically bluff, they're bluffing like how do we bluff successfully? What is our successful bluff?
0: It is a massive game of poker that is just bluff after bluff after bluff <laughs> all, all
2: with and everyone. It, and it's like, and it all builds up to one of the great moments in the, where he asks someone to count to 10. I mean, that's just kind of <laughs> the level of what they're doing it's, it's the whole world basically you know, or, you know, the, the sanctity of, of democracy hangs on a, a game of wings,
0: basically.
2: <laughs> uh, I have to say, though, uh, more than anything, uh, how old are you? I'm 35. Like, every time I see a McDonald's like this, it's like, uh, I, I, um, I played hockey as a kid. So I yeah. had more six a.m. trips to McDonald's, having their breakfast plate. Seven a.m. trips to McDonald's after playing hockey for an hour. You know, all those hockey moms maybe sitting in the smoking section of McDonald's, <laughs> while all the kids are having their. You know, and it, there's just something about that architecture that, because it was mass produced, uh, but no longer is really with us. Is really uh, yes, uh, the pristine cake of it all as it were, um, always hits me strong. I always do those and you can just find yourself running around under the tables, getting covered in animal fat. It's. uh,
0: (laughs) I was just going to say, that's a very, um, Australia seemed to mass produce a lot of their early McDonald's around that time. And then, you know, early nineties, all the seventies stuff started to get phased out with all the really kind of gross nineties stuff, which now is, I don't know, it seems to have hung around for a really long time as well. And the 70s stuff probably hung around from the fifties. But um, yeah, my, my earliest memories of McDonald's are some of these places, the wooden, the wooden barriers between things, the way that the seats were staged, you know. So it does feel familiar. And we used to travel a bit up and down the coast from Sydney with family and and back to home and McDonald's wasn't as prevalent in odds. So when we did go, I do remember those, you know, I remember those cups. I remember those things. And I remember they started having playgrounds for kids and you'd be like, oh my God, there's a playground. And that's how the parents would get you out of there. So they could sit in there and the, it was then outdoor in the 80s. It was a bit more sophisticated. The outdoor smoking section, not indoors. Um, and then uh, how dare we have it indoors? Uh, and the kids would be out playing. But the smoking section is right next to where the kids play. So, that I mean, obviously, that's really smart as well. Um, perfect. So, yeah. Of well, so, yeah,
2: that's the first thing I think of. The other thing, one of the big things about this movie is because it came out in 1976, and... Um, they were approaching at it from an angle that we look at it completely differently now, which is uh, at the time, they're not giving you context of names of like Halderman and Ellsberg and all that stuff, because in 1976, they could assume every single person in America knew who all these players were mm. because they've been raided through the news for the last, you know, months, years at the point. months, years.
0: I'm yeah. um, Sean Burns um, has been a guest on the show. Talk to me about, um, His folks had the I think it was the trial transcripts that you could actually buy. And they were like phone book size things of all these different depositions from all of the players speaking, like the Senate committee, asking them questions and then making their confessions. And Sean's like, you know, my my parents had them because my dad was a Watergate nut. And like they eventually were like doorstops in our house because they were so big. And I'm like, I would, in my mind as an Aussie, that's, we just never had any conception of that. I'm like, oh man, I would love to, if someone's listening to this show right now and your parents have that and you don't need it, just send me a DM because I'm like, I'll pay for that to be shipped to Oz so that I can get one of those bad boys in my hand. I'd love to see
2: it. I'd love to see one of them. Right. What, what's so amazing is that 44 years later, um, it becomes readily apparent that you don't need to know who these people are yes. if the characters know who they are. It's, you know, it's like, it's the proof is in the pudding. You know, Melville, Uh, Jean-Pierre Melville always talked about like people will always follow a character if they're good at their job yes and if you watch people do their work well it is automatically investing and interesting to us as a viewer because we don't need to know how they do everything they do as long as we can tell that they know um which is I mean and I'm I've always been a big fan of process movies, you know, from like The Great Escape to Luttrell. A lot of them are prison movies for whatever reason, yes. maybe because escaping is, you know, The Martian I think is a perfect example of just, you know, you're following the, like, get the job done. But, um, so yeah, like, do you know what Halderman did? Do you know his whole thing? I mean, obviously now maybe you do, but yes. like, watching it, you don't need to know. No. You, and you just now he
0: was, and I love that you said that because it's charting the like what is a functional choice, but now like we look we completely reframe it, and the whole journey of the show is like, it is a complete now feels like a you know a couple of times it's like oh that's a very avant-garde choice to just completely gloss over a name or to say ten names and then you finally go to someone's house and you're like oh this is actually the important person, um and and I think Melville you nailed that Melville observation of like if they if they're good at their job. But it's it's not just if we know or we can see that they're good at their job. It's like the expression of them being good at their job from the movie means that we trust them. Like if you can trust that they're good at their job, it doesn't matter the names that are coming at you like a scattershot If you don't, if you're not familiar with them, um, it's just like oh yeah, well these names aren't important until I need to see, you know, Slippery Hugh Sloan, you know, um, Stephen Collins at his house. That's an important guy because we're now going to him right now. And so many of the great players in this movie and so many of the great p- performances in this movie are people on the other side of a phone that if you even ask me, who's watched this movie like hundreds of times now and said, Blake, could you name every character that's on the other end of one of those phone calls that becomes like a huge influential part of the movie? I'd be like, no way. I couldn't do it. I don't know who they all are. But some of them I do because they're indelible. Um, but, but you know, not, not all of them, definitely not.
2: Yeah. Well, it's also... What's fascinating about this scene is it's where they make their biggest mistake. Yes. And obviously the genius of this movie is they only show you so far into the process of, of, of their investigation. And the mistake they make in this scene is not realizing how dumb they are. Yes. That's the mistake. Like, they didn't even ask. Like, you're, you're, you're drawing a conclusion that makes sense. They're too dumb to think of that. Yes. That's what happens. <laughs> like that's yeah.
1: their
0: failure. And and also you're assuming and this is the big thing you're assuming that the intelligence community was as direct in their investigation as you guys have now come to be after many months of being at it and as incisive knowing the full picture and they just flat out weren't like it, it, they were doing a they were doing a job that they were instructed to do and not going out any other lines because the orders from the top as we now know, um, it, it, with, history, with, with his history as our guide, it's like the orders from the top water just do this rudimentary investigation, close it down as quickly as humanly possible and shut it up because no one wants to talk about it anymore, especially the president doesn't want to talk about it anymore. So these guys are making a, like just starting a hypothesis from the wrong spot going, he would have had to say this because they would have had to ask that question. And that is just flat out wrong. If they ask one more clarifying question, this never happens. One more clarifying question. I'm, you'll never yeah. get anything about me on Hald- Haldeman and even going off the record was Haldeman mentioned in your deposition. No.
2: Yeah. They, That's it. They blew it.
0: They blew it. <laughs> but, but I think that what's funny is the six cups that are on the table, the multiple cups of coffee, the food, the amount of time, it all underscores what is that impatience, which they've had to be gruelingly patient and slow and, And that great Bradley line of like, they didn't have it, that you guys don't have it. You don't have it. You don't have it. This is like the biggest, you know, especially that this particular strategy session is happening in McDonald's. It couldn't be more showing to cut a corner. Like nothing cuts corners more than fast food. Like they're cutting a corner to eat. They're cutting a corner to down 10 cups of coffee. And they're also cutting a corner with this final conclusion that they're attempting to draw. Um, And it's just, and again, They're cutting a corner to a conclusion that they are coming up and I called him Slippery Sloan for a reason. I think it's sort of credit to the creepiness of Stephen Collins and the performance that Pakula ultimately gets out of him, which is he's their most evasive source by far. They've already had multiple very evasive encounters with him. He's evading talking to them to make this clarifying statement and they're going in there with a really evasive guy to try and play some kind of trickery and it's not orchestrated in the right way. And, you know, people are gonna learn in the upcoming scenes just how evasive he is. He continues to evade them to the to the nth degree. And so once everyone kind of knows it, um, it's, of course, he's gonna protect himself. It's a very, very funny little thing. Everyone's, everyone's culpable of all the mistakes they've made.
2: Hmm. Um, I'm a little disappointed. Uh, it's like, honestly, I think this is a really good minute in the sense that, like, as a minute, this this minute tells a story. Yes, you know you get you get like a full meal in this minute. Um, I don't know, like hey Ned, baby, that's great. You know, there's all <laughs> kinds of like little like, you know, great things. This doesn't have a diabolo shot. That's actually probably <laughs> the thing that's most disappointing. <laughs> but what this does have is something that I think was part of the strategy uh, going forward, which is. There's a lot of open space behind them and a lot of activity behind them while this is going on. The genius of this film is that Bakula makes something where everyone in the entire world knows what's going to happen in the end, suspenseful.
1: Mm. And
2: one of the ways he does that is through staging. And one of the great things about the dioptic shots, only, not only is it great just because technically they're so fucking cool, and once you know what it is, it's like, you know, I'm a Brian De Palma fan. I fucking (laughs) love my guy. Um, But part of that is to create a sense of unease that something could be happening in in the background, something could be happening anywhere, and it might have a direct impact on the scene. Now, of course, they avoid sort of like an its follow kind of sting, something like that, where something does really emerge. But keeping you on edge, with all this stuff to look at and all this activity is is definitely part of the game plan and I think it's readily apparent in the scene, which is why it's interesting. It's just two shots recovering and it cuts into Dustin Hoffman's moment. He's the only thing in the frame and then, you know, Redford comes in. So we're just in this moment because, I mean, this is a really crucial scene. We're we're finding our focus and it's, it's just about these two guys. It's all about taking care of this thing.
0: I yeah, love the yeah. i love the cut-in in this sequence though it's so brilliantly done because like, as you said it's a, it, it feels like a very straightforward just occupying a space it's not showy it's very very deliberate but it's not showy that's what's so great about this movie like i think it 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 doesn't get the credit it deserves for being very artistically framed and purposeful because sometimes it's just very functional like it doesn't want to put you know that i'll shine on the ball like it doesn't want to shine it to like give you a a, a hint that it's doing anything to overtly show because of the text um oh sorry because of the you know the real world sort of lives of these people that they're trying to portray but i love the cut in and i love redford sneaking in because then hoffman leans in and he's just right in your face about okay well we're going to do this thing that's slightly deceptive um and and let's you know, and in private we're sort of talking about it out out loud, and it's even funny in this public place. They've said lots of like incriminating stuff. It's Alderman. It's Alderman. They're saying it out loud, and then like, it's only their strategy that gets that nice and close. He leans in, um, but I just love that he leans in, and and Redford comes in and goes, okay, okay, and they just have this dialogue, and it's it's I don't know the intimacy of it, the way that they do it, the choice to do it at that moment. It's all very I don't know. This movie continues to be special for me, but that's just such a special choice because it's a really great cut. It's a really you Know it's it's it, because they're still both in the frame, but just the way it's a little bit closer, it's a little bit skew if and maybe it's a little bit wrong.
2: Well, also, to z- 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 a little bit of what we were talking about beforehand, uh, you know, the craft in this film it's like uh, it's almost an experimental movie in some ways because of how it pulls back from telling you everything you need to know because it assumes you know those things. And, um, and here, you know, at the end of the film. Again, we're down to two shots. It's not a lot of editing. There's no real camera movement here. You're in. You're invested. Yes. This is this is the story. This is the world. Where you know, I mean, you have the pull-up shot that's fairly dramatic, but no, I mean it's not a lot of it's mostly the diopters or are, are, are where they're um the or where they're having their their fun. But obviously Willis and his crew aren't just working on a level that's just next level. I mean it's it's insane. The craft of this film is always jaw-dropping. Sort of like like Walter Hill loves to hide wonders. And if you watch if you watch movies enough, sometimes people are really good, like directors will do a scene where there's no cuts, but you unlike in, Inherent Vice, where it's like the longer it goes on, the more you go like, wait, we're not leaving this, like Walter Hill or there's a great one in the blog where it's just a minute shot where the camera's just following people around and it's all staging and it's like, it doesn't feel flashy because there's no reason to cut. Yes. Um, it's just, it's just well staged. And yeah, obviously Bakul and Willis at this point, were just, they had worked together long enough to just have this great trust. And yeah, no, this film is, is magic.
0: Yeah. It's, it's so funny to hear, sto- hear stories of like, um, uh, Gordon Willis and Coppola fighting a lot on the first Godfather together, like establishing a relationship, and then the second film, which you know, in in many ways, is like a superior film, probably technically as an you know technically as an achievement, potentially performances, ambition, all those other things that you know, obviously the first one's a masterpiece, and the second one just elevates significantly. But it's that establishing a relationship, and these two guys, Akula, um, and Willis, are just like it's effortless. Like it just feels effortless, everything about it, even just in the, one of the scenes coming up, um, there was a, there's, sorry, a a scene that we've just gone through actually, sorry, is, um, Hoffman navigating his way through the newsroom to come up to Sally Aitken, which then breaks some of the information that we've just previously seen. And then there's a moment that the camera tracks him through the whole newsroom. He's sort of anchored to one spot and pans across as he comes over to the secretary. And there's just the briefest second, this little emphatic cut to Sally Aitken, like she's there. And then it goes back to that stage shot. And then she, like Redford does in this shot, steps into it. And I just can't get enough of the choice that functionally, just to emphasize that Sally is there, we're not going to do it as a surprise. We're just going to have, here's Sally. She's an important person that's about to be here. And like, it tells you all these things implicitly um, as a viewer that like, this is important. What she's about to say is going to be there. And I just love, I love that. I love that. It's, it, it, I, I think the flashier, um, and for example, you know, not to shit on um, uh, Mr. Deacons and Sam Mendes, but like t- 1917 as a war film, It feels like if you just gave up your gimmick and tried to be storytellers, this could be a great film. And I just think the more that I, you know, as that movie dragged on in my viewing of it, sorry to crap on another movie, but I was just like, the gimmick is hurting your ability to tell this story. Just tell the story. Like it could be big, chunky individual shots, but, and and, you know, you're obviously hiding cuts to special effects, but it's just like, Come on, Can, you, the gimmick is killing you, and I love that this is a gimmickless, st- and that's the way that Pakula seems to be as a director. He's like a very gimmickless guy. Well, wants to do-
2: oh, oh my god, I'm I'm gonna get I'm gonna get so catty right now. Like, <laughs> but like with with Mendez and and Inaritu, I'm fuck. <laughs> Birdman doesn't work. Birdman doesn't work. Like Inaritu, like. The Revenant is just such a garbage movie. <laughs> and you have these guys who think they understand craft, but it's like, if you ever watch Alfred Hitchcock's Rope, the main thing Hitchcock shows in that movie is that editing is an important tool and you don't need to not use it. There's no point. Uh. Birdman isn't a better film for being one shot. 1917 isn't a better movie for being one shot. Now, you know People like it. There's a purpose. I'm not going. To, I, I still haven't seen it because I don't give a shit. Um, <laughs> because it's a gimmick. Of, uh, yeah, like the idea of not cutting. Uh, again, it's the Jurassic Park line. It's like you're you're so obsessed with doing it that you stop to you forget to stop and think. Should I? Yes. It's like no, you shouldn't. Why are you doing this? <laughs> you, you don't have to do it. Oh, it's such a technical accomplishment. My balls.
0: One of one of the but one of the most profound things, and it's like, you know, Scorsese talks about it, and to paraphrase him, it's like, and Tarantino talks about it, is like the editorial draft of the movie is such an important draft in creation. Obviously, there's like the drafts in the writing and then direct, you know, the performance on the day and the direction of the day. And the edit is like the edit is literally the final draft of the movie. It is like capturing all the coverage. It's doing things. It's omitting things and calculating going, we don't need this or we do need this. Or we need to go back and reshoot something else. Cause it didn't work. It's so critically important. And to not have that tool, I think, you know, when we did one eight minute and definitely did an inherent vice um, and, now all the president's minutes, of course, like all three of these deep dive discussions we've done, like editing is such a choice. It is a very calculating and purposeful decision. That's so important. It's such like, it is the foundational craft in the movie and this movie doesn't, knows how to not edit when certain things need a tail so that you have to sit with it and it definitely knows when to edit, to emphasize things. And those choices are just as important. Um, and, and when I look at this film and particularly when I think of like, um, the editor, um, of, uh, of all the president's men, which is Robert L. Wolf, who used to work with Sam Peckinpah, um, you know, he is such a vital contributor to this movie because he helped them design the ending. Cause the ending was going to be, you know, Nixon resigning and going, you know, one of the original endings of the film was going to be Nixon resigning and going off in the helicopter, that sort of famous shot. Also that's portrayed in the beginning of Frost-Nixon um, Ron Howard's film and, and he Robert Wolf, as you might imagine, as someone who worked with Peckinpah and, and liked his guns was a Republican. And he goes, that's just on the nose He goes, it's a bit on the nose to do. Like he comes down on the helicopter, he leaves on the helicopter. He goes, he just felt like a bit on the nose. He's like, let's do it with the facts. Let's do it with, you know, the teletype and they the, the ending." Tape. Yeah. They do, do it on the ticket tape, like do it like there, you know? Um, So yeah, I, I just, The gimmick is so pointless to me in so many ways.
2: Well, I think also the big thing is that uh, because editing, like most of the post-production work on a movie is invisible. And so, you know, it's like, we don't know how much an editor shapes a film in the same way maybe we can see performance or direction or cinematography. So it's always just like, you know, it, you can't, it's harder to compare, say, Michael Kahn to, you know, Dee Allen or whoever you want to, Mother Cutter, whatever names you want to throw out there as your editors. But uh, yeah, I mean, obviously on this one, they were working with some, the craft on this one was unparalleled. <laughs> but a, so, anyway.
0: Yeah, it's, and so we get into this moment, we get into that performance um these these two guys are so in sync at this stage of the movie but it's been great to watch them evolve to be in sync in this movie that it's kind of one of the one of the scenes where maybe being too in sync and not challenging one another is actually a bad thing and i was just thinking about that when i was just watching this in the minutes preceding us talking i was i've talked so much about from a technical standpoint, these both of these actors learning each other's lines towards the end of the movie so that they could interrupt each other organically. Um, you know, all those fun tricks that they played. Obviously, the tension between one of the greatest double takes, I'm a Republican in the Col- in the original Collins Sloan scene and, and Hoffman doing the like quadruple take that uh Woodward is a Republican, that great tension. But now in this scene, they they're not there there is a there's a frustration at the story not moving fast enough but Hoffman complies because in a way Redford's cutting a corner and Bernstein's like yeah we can we can use our tradecraft we can be journalists and manipulate to get the answer but it's one of the rare scenes where they were in agreement and they're in chorus and they were wrong like they actually need need the strength of being different and having a clash of opinions that makes their relationship so powerful and, and helps them uncover the things in this story.
2: It's also the, this scene relates to uh, an earlier scene that sort of parallels with it, where they they're, they're conceiving a similar thing where they're going to do a little rush fake, as it were, with with another of their witnesses to try and get information out of them in a similar way. Yeah. So this is this is basically the time where it's like they're trying it again and it doesn't work. Yes. Um. um this movie, this may so sharp and what's amazing about it is how well obviously Goldman adapted material. Um, Okay. Yeah. I mean, they found, they found, they found the best way to tell this.
0: Yeah. In, 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 in in so many ways. And like, I know I said the Godfather before, but it sort of happens as like the Puzo novel ultimately is the basis or the scaffolding and the structure that they then expand and extrapolate for the first two movies, which are kind of both undeniably. Incredible, um, and I think that what's such a great choice is um, knowing what to take in the novel because it does go beyond their investigation. It does go beyond, and it takes you into places. And having the laser-like focus of going, all I want to see is these guys in this point in time, like up to this moment. That's the movie. Like this is the movie. The rest of it is extraneous. We don't need it. And making that choice to go, that's how we're going to focus on it. And these are the characters that get on blast and these are the moments that are going to be scary. It's like, yep, that's, that's the real stuff in there. I think it's a, it's kind of genius the, the way that he does it because it's, you know, so many things try and, you know, obviously the one big one that I criticize the most is like turning one baby book, like the Hobbit into three movies is like one of the dumbest decisions of all time. Um, when you've got three Lord of the Rings movies that are actually quite good um, that, that, that trim down the, uh, the, the movie. But in this case, it's, it's really smart because it's like the actual movie, everything you need to know is here. And then not reaching any of those other things, any of their other texts any of the stuff. It's just like, this is it. This is how it is. And it just seems unconscionable that it would be allowed to happen today. they would be so, you know, let's make the whole thing. Let's do it as a series on Netflix. Let's do 10 episodes of every one of the books that Woodward wrote. Like, it just feels like we don't need that. We need, we need this moment because that's the human element of the whole story.
2: No, it's, it's, it, it, it's it's brilliant work and it's funny too because I remember in college I got a hold of um, William Goldman's draft of the right stuff. He had he had been on it for a while, yes. And his adaptation is terrible. It's it's it, it doesn't work. Um, or at least you know when I read that twenty some years ago, my reaction was like, oh, this is the wrong way to tell this story. <laughs> yes. Especially when you compare it to the, the Hoffman film. But you know again. Uh, uh, sometimes the right writer is right for the right things, and not always. You can't. Yeah, he's not a jack of all trades. Goldman, um, when he is working within his lane, is one of the great writers in movies. When he isn't, uh, he can miss. He can. Miss. He can <laughs> he, swing. He, miss. But, he absolutely uh, can. You know.
0: <laughs> all the all the greats can miss. Yeah.
2: yeah. This is this is definitely. I think also, like uh Goldman sometimes errs towards cuteness, and I think that's minimalized here there's it's not a very cute movie no. um, you know you you can see it in some of the periphery you know when when Bradley yells out, Woodstein you know there's <laughs> there's little things, but that also feels like a real thing that he would have had it yeah. at, at a certain point he became a two headed you know thing <laughs> yes. Um, and, yeah, and, I mean, and
0: even, even, you know, that's the other thing about one of his early drafts. And he, you know, the one thing you can not say about Goldman, he was a fastidious recorder of his different drafts. And there was a funnier early draft of this movie because he was sitting in the newsroom in those newsroom meetings and all the guys around that desk were busting each other's balls the whole time. And like, there is a little bit of ball busting in what remains in the movie, but it was a funnier movie from the gallows humor of all the journalists at the time. And at the time when, you know, Redford and Pacquiao sort of looked at the material, they're like, It's too funny. We can be funny. We can be sardonic, but it's too funny. It's too glib. We can't, it's not a comedy. We're not making, you know, we're not making broadcast news or the paper. Like we're making all the president's men. Like this needs to, you know, this needs to be sharp. It needs to be exactly and precise. And yes, there can be some humorous moments because of the awkwardness and you need to, in this movie, this, it does need tension breaks because it is completely a tense film. Um, But you can't, you can't go over the top with that, so it can't be Butch and Sundance.
2: Yeah, no, this is this is a movie that uh, funny things happen, but no one's cracking wise. Whereas with Butch Cassidy, it's very much the opposite. In fact, the funny thing is, it's like when I Cassidy, uh, I, I didn't really have any context of it being a 1969 film. Yes. So the first time I saw it, when you die at the end, it, it just felt like, oh, that's fucking bullshit. That's not the movie you're making. These guys are having a fun adventure in, in Mexico. Why they got to die? And the reason they have to die is, well, history, but also it was 1969 and everyone died at the end. <laughs> Oh. I, think,
0: I think Australian cinema uh, took the 1969 energy and just applied it to we need heroin addicts in love where one of them dies at the end. And basically for 10 years, only made movies where heroin addicts in love, one of them died at the end. And you're like, can we go back to Mad Max for Christ's sake? Can we get back to like Gallipoli? Can we do something, just something ent- remotely entertaining and maybe maybe some, uh, you know, some ausploitation energy back, razorback energy, give me something because I can't do any so more what heroin you're saying is
2: like, I, I, I can't say that I'm as well-versed in Australian cinema as perhaps uh, someone who lives there. So what you're saying is basically around the time of like Rawhead Rex, that kind of cinema went away <laughs> and more movies like <laughs> Proof yes. were coming? Is that kind of- Yes, they kind, kind of, of like-, so a, like a but, proof,
0: but Proof's great. So it's like Proof happens and then there's like 20 movies of heroin addicts in love and you're like, no, stop. Let's make- like the same energy we need we need more two handses uh we need uh you know uh it's sort of there was a bit of a later renaissance that came uh, came along in aussie uh contemporary stuff but it's like i think there was a sort of a genre cringe a bit it was like that cultural cringe happened and it was largely because of some of our big critical voices in the country and everything became sort of artsy and wankery and and in my mind it's like some of our best most politically engaged and incisive and actually influential cinema came out of people who were using genre to sort of capture the state of Australia. Um, and so like later on, it's actually worked in our favor and now sort of that's happened, but yeah, there's nothing more infuriating to me than sort of sticking with like a thematic thing and going, just running it to death in this country. It's like, ugh, um, it doesn't seem to have any balance.
2: As, as, as someone who lives stateside, we don't tend to think about like Australian cinema, like, because like we get a couple of movies, but it's mostly like, say, Muriel's Wedding, and maybe it's, uh, was it Some of Us? Yes. You know, and, and Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Um, but there's probably a good 60% of the movies that are made for Australia that just never come over here. Yeah. And they could be like, I don't know. Maybe you guys made like 14 movies similar to Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. We just don't know about it
0: over here. <laughs> they, they they probably needed to make 14 because Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, is amazing. But it's but yes, then after yes. that they don't the, you know that movie is funny and it's heartfelt and it's forthright and some people probably it, you know, it, it was unashamed about showing that you know a bunch of trans sites weren't necessarily well loved. Um, they were more curiosity, and they would just the movie just seemed very forthright about the entire culture. Um, and then you get others where it's just like you know two artsy people in rainy Melbourne shooting up together, and one of them dies, and you're like, stop, can we just stop? I'm done. Um, let's make right. animal, let's make Animal Kingdom where the cops are killing the crooks, or you know something like that. You know,
2: all I know is like every year or two, like we we steal one of your actors. <laughs> Where it's like, it's like Sarah, Sarah, Crow, Sarah
0: yeah. Snooks, the latest in succession, you know, and we're all like, hey, yeah, yeah. you're like, you took Snook. She's so good. She's at Merrill. She's killing it.
2: Yeah. Like, because we, we already had some Samara weaving, and then, you know.
0: <laughs> oh, she's great. God, it's such a shame of the controversy that happened with guns akimbo because samara weaving is so unbelievably badass in that movie that it's she's just a joy mayhem she's great i i can't remember the other oh, one yeah. uh, the um what's the one where she's recently ready or, not. Ready or not that's a oh, that's a blast that, that's a good triple samara weaving triple feature so so wonderful all three of those movies yeah she's
2: wonderful i, I think uh yeah i i've been a fan for a minute she was also on the uh Ash versus the Evil Dead show for like a hot minute. That's where I <laughs> and and her. I think I think she's
0: uh, I'm not wrong in saying she's in Bill and Ted as well, which is great. So she's in Face yeah, the yeah. Music. So yeah, no, she's killing it. But yeah, so
2: before that, that was Margot Robbie too. Yeah, right? She's yes, an Money, yeah. right?
0: Yes. Yeah. Now she's running. You know, she like I it. said, we
2: keep stealing your act.
0: What? Uh, she's running shit over there. Margot Robbie. She's inspirational. You know, she's in her production company. They, you know, she took a whole bunch of uh, oh, yeah, you yeah. Know, women and people of color riders together and they did like a writers retreat. And like every one of them has sold scripts. Now it's, that's a, that's very cool stuff happening over there.
2: Yeah, no, good on her.
0: Um, um, yeah. But yeah. So back, let's, let's dip out great. of sit let's dip out of Sydney and let's come back to Washington DC. Um, Washington well, <laughs> <laughs> to, to these guys. Um, one final thing is, uh, is this a prototype for product placement? I mean, I just have to like, I've just looked at the still that I got of this. Like there's there's some very good, there's a lot of those cups that you're talking about that have the M for McDonald's facing the screen. And so I just wonder if there's just a little bit of proto product placement in this. And the corporate
2: pounder wrapper. <laughs> yes. Yeah.
0: It says, Quarter bound are very explicitly readable, uh, legible on there, uh, almost, almost anyway. I,
2: I wouldn't be surprised if this was product placement in a way. Um, you can go kind of six and one half dozen of the other on it, but I think I think you know product placement is like so many tools. It's like it can be done well or it can be done poorly. And I'd say that all of the fast food stuff in this just feels just feels right. Yeah, it feels right. You know? but you know. And, I I don't know, it's weird now because it's like when you watch a film like Gremlins and there's like a Burger King in the (laughs) background and you go like, oh, that's the old style, how they used to do Burger King. And then you get to spend a minute thinking about like how, you know, labels have changed and all that fun stuff. I I, I delight in it. I
0: I delight in it too. I, I delight in it too. And then I also marvel when I watch a Michael Bay movie, especially a recent one at just how unrelenting it is, how you are literally like, it's a visual catalog of like 10,000 things. It is like spot the, the thing that you're going to be watching. So it's, 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 it's one of those things now that almost is like, it would feel, feel remiss of me not to mention it in the scene that's set in McDonald's, but it, it just feels, it would be annoying if it was like some random place they had to dress up you know that's what's actually better about it. It's like it is a McDonald's. It's probably a McDonald's that these two guys really sat in. It's probably they found a spot for them to do it, and they, you know, shot it at you know at night when it was closed, so that they could have the actual visuals and have people working there and have you know whatever the crew, the extended crew. Um, but it, it it just works a treat.
2: I'm am just saying, you know, on one hand you've got this, on the other hand you've got Mac and me. This is not Mac and me. <laughs>
0: No, it's not no it is not well look Damon it's been such a treat talking to you my friend thank you for being the last American that I'm going to speak to uh, leading up to the election thank you for your insights thank you for thank you for being a part of the show thank you for sharing our recent uh, victory lap of uh, increment vice going around the around the grounds which you featured in and uh, yeah just thank you so much for being a part of the show I really appreciate it
2: Well, I I went out on a Mac and me reference. It doesn't get any. No, it doesn't. It certainly doesn't.
0: That was Damon Howx, H-O-U-X, at H-O-U-X on Twitter is where you can find him. Thank you, Damon, for being such a great guest. Uh, I'm releasing this in the midst of the American election right now. I was going to release it before. I'm kind of releasing it in the midst because it doesn't really.